Do you remember the Ice Bucket Challenge? If you're not familiar with the Ice Bucket Challenge, uh, it was a challenge that was an activity involving the dumping of buckets of ice and water uh, over a person's head, uh, either by another person or self-administered. This was in order to promote awareness for a disease uh, called ALS in America, called the Lou Gehrig's disease, and to encourage donation for its research. It went viral on social media during the summer of 2014. And what this challenge specifically did was that it encouraged nominated participants um, to be filmed having a bucket of ice water poured on their heads and then nominating others to do the same. And the common stipulation is that nominated participants have 24 hours to comply or they would forfeit Uh, by way of donating to a charitable foundation uh, towards the research of ALS. Now, my wife and I contribute uh, to various charitable organizations, including to the church primarily. But does it really take getting ice water poured and dumped on your head to get this generation, young and old, uh, to move? Uh, Apparently, it does. uh, Because this generation, young and old, is looking for something to do, Uh, and we want to find purpose in what we do, uh, and we're looking for something more. But when it comes to doing something uh, with our lives today, it often doesn't have anything to do with our own spiritual life. Most of the time, as it relates to our spiritual life, uh, we are a generation, young and old, that has fallen into the pitfall of spiritual inaction. If you don't believe me, I want you to think, uh, when was the last time you did something of spiritual significance? When was the last time you leveled up in your spiritual life? When was the last time you were motivated to do something great for the Lord? You see, many of us have fallen into the pitfall of spiritual inaction because we are not aware of what needs to be done. What are the actionable items we need to do to avoid this pitfall? We want to continue our sermon series again this morning uh, with our sermon series entitled Kings and Kingdoms as we've been looking these many weeks at how we can not only start well, but how we can finish well by avoiding the pitfalls of life. And this morning, we come to our 10th pitfall, the pitfall of inaction. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 34. 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, and if you're new to the Bible this morning, uh, the book of 2 Chronicles is in the Old Testament. It follows, of course, 1 Chronicles, and then it is before the book of Ezra. 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, we're going to be looking this morning at the life of King Josiah. King Josiah's action, as we're going to see, turns around the spiritual condition of an entire country. Second Chronicles chapter 34. If you take a look at me in verse 1 and 2, the Bible reads this. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
Now, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, you know that King Josiah follows two very evil kings who did not walk in the ways of God. It was his grandfather, King Manasseh, and his father, King Ammon. The Bible tells us uh, because King Ammon was murdered, Josiah becomes king when he is only eight years old. Now, the chronicler gives us a summary and assessment of his life in verse 2. And surprisingly, if you're reading this chronologically, we are surprised to read that Josiah was a king who followed in the ways of the one true God, Yahweh, in the mold of his forefather, David, and his great-great-grandfather, King Hezekiah. Now, we're not told in the Scriptures uh, why he turned to the ways of God. Perhaps it was because of godly influences in his life. Perhaps his mother, Jedida, who's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings chapter 21, or one of his tutors or one of his teachers brought him spiritual truth in the ways of the Lord. Nevertheless, the Bible makes it very clear he was not like his father or his grandfather. So when did he begin his journey towards godly living? Look at verse 3, the first part. For in the eighth year of his reign... While he was still young, Josiah began, note this, to seek the God of his father David. If you're doing the math, we know that at the age of 16, as a young teenager, Josiah made a conscious decision to seek God. Would you circle that phrase that are underlined in your Bible? He sought the God of his father David. You see, my friends, 16 years old is not too young to make a decision to follow God for the rest of your life. It's one thing to grow up in a Christian family. It is another to personally walk a path of a personal relationship with our Lord. This was a young man who early on in life sought God with his entire life. And because he sought God, he did so throughout his entire life. You know, this serves as a warning to us. It serves as a warning, also as an encouragement to us. And what's the warning? Uh, The warning is that we should remember that there is no age too young where we can begin to influence our children to walk in the ways of God. And if we miss oftentimes this period of life when the young minds are malleable and where young minds are responsive to the Word of God, then sometimes we may miss out. But it also serves as a great encouragement. And that encouragement is this. It doesn't matter how young one person is. They can make a very solid, firm conviction to follow God with all of their life, even at a young age. And that's why we at this church place a great emphasis on young people. We teach them that a relationship with Jesus Christ begins with them and their own personal desire to seek Him with all of their heart. We challenge them that they can, at the age of 16, perhaps even younger, they can make a committed decision to follow God for the rest of their life. The relationship one has with God is intensely personal doesn't matter how your father or your grandfather acted and how they treated God. It is a personal decision on your part that determines whether you will seek God or not. A decision made to walk with God is not a group decision. It is a personal decision. 
Well, that decision to seek and follow God was with him for the rest of his life, and it led him to four concrete actions. And it is through these four concrete actions of Josiah that we will extrapolate four biblical principles for how we can avoid the pitfall of spiritual inaction. Let's take a look at the first concrete action Josiah does. In verse 3, the second part, it reads this. In the twelfth year, Josiah began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. And in verses 4 to 7, it is a summary of the details of what verse 3 tells us. The Bible tells us when he was 20 years old, Josiah had such a close relationship with God that he was perhaps jealous for him. And Josiah would not allow the worship of any other gods, any other false gods in the kingdom in which he ruled. You see, there was no such thing as tolerance in his vocabulary. The worship of the one true God, Yahweh, would be the only thing tolerated in his kingdom, and rightly so. In other words, you can say that Josiah was intolerant of other religions. You know, in our generation today, we are simply too tolerant of that which is simply wrong. Our culture has taught us to believe that tolerance means you cannot disagree with someone else, even when they are completely wrong. Recently, I've read about men and women who believe that the world is flat. They believe that the world is flat, uh, that it is not a sphere, and they have conspiracy theories of why they believe scientists have fooled us into thinking that the world is a sphere. If you ask me, these people are stupid. Now, I'm not allowed to say that because in this tolerant society, I'm supposed to let them believe what they want to believe, even though they are completely wrong even if there is scientific data that proves that the world is not flat, but that the world is a sphere. But this is what our world has come to. What if years down the road there are people who believe that the world is a triangle or that the world is a square? Do I not have the right to tell them that they are absolutely wrong, lest I be called someone who is intolerant? But this is where the world is moving towards. In fact, the United Nations Declaration of Principles on Tolerance says this, Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. Well, this is simply wrong. What the United Nations is saying is that there is no such thing as absolute truth, and yet we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, followers of the Scriptures that hold the Scriptures to be inerrant, we believe that there is one truth, and there's only one way to heaven. And I'm sorry to say that I am intolerant when it comes to that. D.A. Carson makes a wise perception of where our world is heading when he says this. The result of this new tolerance is that in many domains, in many discussions, the question is rarely, is this true? But now the question is, is anyone offended? Rigorous discussion of content soon shuts down. Truth is demoted. 
various forms of class warfare are encouraged, in some domains it becomes wrong to say that anyone is wrong. The very nature of truth flies in the face of tolerance. As someone has said, absolute truth is by definition guilty of intolerance. And that's why we have a problem of spiritual inaction today. That's why believers of Jesus Christ do not move today, because we are simply too tolerant of that which is wrong. Therefore, to avoid the pitfall of spiritual inaction, we must be like Josiah, number one of your taking notes. We need to take up the action of intolerance when God's specific instructions are in view. Let me repeat that. We are to take up the action of intolerance when God's specific instructions are in view. If God says it is wrong, it is wrong whatever the culture says. If God says something about the matter in Scripture, perhaps as it relates to adultery or living out a homosexual lifestyle or stealing or cheating, it is okay to be intolerant and say, this is what God says, and it is this which is right. You see, Josiah was intolerant of the current false religious system of worshiping the false Canaanite deities, that he took down the system that led to the worship of the false Canaanite gods. He took down the high places, all the false idols from the wooden ones to the carved ones to the molded ones. He cleansed out his entire country as far-reaching as the land in the north. Now, let me ask you this. How many 20-year-olds do you know have this type of conviction who are willing to take this type of stand, very few, unfortunately. And yet, if a 20-year-old like Josiah can do this, then none of us have an excuse to take on the action of intolerance when God's specific instructions are in view. And this led him to the cleansing of the land. I want you to look at verse 7. I want you to see something unique here. Verse 7. When Josiah had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images in the powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. It's interesting that we read here that Josiah is personally supervising the actual taking down and destruction of the entire system of the worship of the false gods of Canaan. Josiah did not sit idly by while there was sin in his country. He was intolerant when God's specific actions are in view. You know, this is a bit of a contrast to when I thought about David. Remember David? If I were to ask you, what was David's greatest sin? I'm sure most of you would tell me his sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember what was written when David fell into sin with Bathsheba, the author writes this. He writes, when all the kings should have been at war, David was sitting at home. When David should have been out there leading his people, he was not. He was in his palace, and he fell into sin. What a contrast to Josiah. 
one who was leading the destruction of that which opposed God's system. He did not sit idly by. He was a man of action because he was intolerant when God's specific instructions are in view, and God was very clear, you shall have no other false gods before me. Look at the second thing he does in verse 8. In the 18th year of his reign, when Josiah had purged the land and the temple, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, Maaseiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. The Bible tells us when the purge of the land was over, at the age of 26, Josiah's next project was to repair the house of God. And verses 9 to 13, if you have time, go back and read it, gives us the detail of this work. Now, jump down to verse 14 with me. Now, when they had brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. In the process of this repair work, we are told in verse 14 that they find the book of the law. Most scholars believe this is either the entire book of Deuteronomy or perhaps the entire Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. But whatever the case, they found the Word of God. If they find the Word of God, that means the Word of God had to be lost. They lost the Word of God. It is hard to understand. It's, it's hard to comprehend how they could have lost the Word of God, the very words of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai generations ago for how they were to live their lives in fellowship with the one true God. And yet, the Bible tells us that generation had lost the Word of God. You know, that serves as a warning to us, a warning that simply one or two generations can lead a group of people to ignore God. It goes to show you just how far one or generation can go to leave the Lord. It's a warning to us and even to our families that if we ignore, disregard the reading of the Word of God, that next generation, our children, our grandchildren, will no longer follow God as we do. And if you as parents are afraid to read the Word of God to your children, or you as parents don't give them spiritual experiences like bringing them to church in one or two generations, they could easily forget everything about God. That's why it often saddens me when I see spiritual giants in the faith, and I just met one this past week. Love the Lord with all of their heart. These grandparents love the Lord, and they gave to the church. They invested their lives in the church, and yet none of their children and none of their grandchildren go to church. It's sad. It can and it does happen. And verse 14 tells us it happened to that generation. Just two generations removed from the great king Hezekiah, Manasseh and Ammon ignored the word of God and they lost the word of God. In verses 15 to 17, Hilkiah the priest passed the book to Shaphan, the scribe, who in turn brought it to King Josiah and read the book to the king. Now look what happens in verse 19. Thus it happened when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. How many of you have been so affected by the reading 
of God's word that you tore your clothes in despair. You were so convicted. Or I'll be less dramatic. Now, how many of you have read the word of God in your devotion or heard the word of God being preached and you just simply had to stop and you said, whoa, and you began to cry because you were so hit in your heart? What you have here exemplified in verse 19 is the action of self-reflection and self-examination. What's the difference? Self-reflection and self-examination. Self-reflection asks the question, how does it speak to me? How does it affect me? I'm self-reflecting. When I hear the Word of God and I self-reflect, I'm asking myself the question, how does it affect me? How does it speak to me? Self-examination goes a bit further. It asks the question, how then should I change? I'm not only reflecting, I'm examining to see areas in my life for how I then should change. That is what we're asked to do when we read the Word of God. And number two, if you're taking notes, the second action to avoid spiritual inaction, number two, is to cultivate the action of both self-reflection and self-examination. Cultivating the action of self-reflection and self-examination. Asking ourselves the question, how does it speak to me? And then asking ourselves the question, how then should I change? Both questions are important. And yet in our generation today, we don't do much of this. We do not self-reflect. We do not self-examine. You know, I made a comment before that we all love to look in the mirror. We always examine our own selves in the mirror. And if you don't believe me, what do you do every time you go to a mall and you walk by a mirror? I believe you're examining yourselves. What do you see? You see yourself. You see the reflection of who you are. But how many of you, when you look in the mirror, go beyond the physical and look at yourself from the depth of your heart to see how you are consistent with what the Word of God teaches. When I was a teenager, I'd mentioned this before, that I grew up with a severe case of acne with pimples. Uh, it was so bad, I had to go to the dermatologist uh, almost once a month. And I can remember my South African dermatologist, Dr. Terporton, uh, in his proper British English, would tell me, Stephen, do not manipulate your pimples uh, simply put, he told me not to pop them because it would leave a scar. Well, if you look at my face closely, you can tell that I did not heed his advice. That's why I have so many scars and pot marks in my face. As a teenager, I don't know why, I would often stare in the mirror because I had so many pimples. And you know, if you're a young person, you know this, uh, you would pop them. It's just so tempting. And I would often look at myself and see all the pimples but there was something that I was missing. I never looked beyond the outward to look inside my own heart because you see, in my heart there was something darker. It was a heart of rebellion. And I never looked deeper beyond the outward to see the heart of rebellion that needed to change. And that led me to a period of my life when I did not walk with God. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourself that Jesus Christ is in you 
unless you indeed are disqualified. That's why I'm not a big fan of walk, read through the Bible in a year. A lot of people do it, and if it blesses you, okay, great. But for most people, I know it's a race. It's, it's a race to get through the Bible. And if you ask them, what did you read? They have no idea. For them, as long as they made it through from Genesis to Revelation every year, they're good to go. I'd rather you not finish the Word of God every year. I'd rather that when you read a verse or two or a paragraph in your daily walk, that you stop and you self-reflect and self-examine your life to see what God, God's Word says for how we should be affected by it and how then we should change. Just a few verses of being read the Scriptures. And the Bible tells us in verse 19, Josiah tore his clothes. Look at verse 20. What else does he do? Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shephan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shephan, the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. King Josiah issued a command to some of his most trusted people. He needed to get more advice concerning what he had just heard, what had just been read. Because it was in the mind of Josiah that his people had not obeyed God according to God's word, and therefore... They were rightfully afraid that God would soon act. You see, more than self-reflecting and self-examining himself, here's something interesting. Josiah began to self-reflect and self-examine the state of the nation in which he was responsible for as a leader against what God's Word said. You see, it's not only your own lives to which you are responsible for to examine and reflect based on scriptures. It is also to that which you have responsibility over. Josiah was so scared when he looked at his country, he said, I need to know more about how God will act. It's a good reminder for us. Some of you are owners, some of you are owners of businesses. Some of you are head of your family. Some of you are the leaders of your barcada. You have a responsibility over that which God has placed you over, your company, your family, your household, your group of friends, to self-reflect and self-examine, to see if that corporation, to see if that your family, to see if your group of friends is consistent with what God's Word says. I hope that makes sense. God has put you into that sphere of influence to be an agent of change. But for most of us, we think that the Christian life is only to change us, to change me. But no. If we take the example of Josiah, he was so moved that the nation to whom he was responsible to govern over, he also examined and reflected to see if that nation was consistent with what the Word of God taught. I want to challenge you in your group of friends, in your businesses, in your families, to that which you have responsibility over, would you examine to see if it is consistent with what God's Word says? And if it is not, then look for ways to change.
you and I are agents of change called by God in our spheres of influences. The third action is found in verses 22 to 28. Well, these men sent by Josiah consulted God's prophetess known as Huldah. We read about this in verses 22 to 25, and she just lived outside of Jerusalem. And she warned them that God was going to bring judgment on the land because His Word had said very clearly that if they disobeyed, they would be disciplined. You can go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 29 or Leviticus chapter 26. You see, God's plan has always been made very clearly given to them. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be disciplined. And the nation had for generations practiced idolatry and apostasy. But look at what else she says in verses 26 to 28. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, in this manner you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the words which you have heard. Note this. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his word against this place and against its inhabitants, and you humbled yourself before me, and you tore your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place and its inhabitants. So they brought back word to the king. The prophetess said that because of Josiah's heart of tenderness that caused him to respond to God's Word, God's judgment on his generation would be held back until he died. I've got that underlined in my Bible in verse 27. Because his heart was tender. This heart of tenderness must have been something that Josiah cultivated since he was 16 years old when he sought God with all of his heart. Because only one who keeps their heart tender will be willing to be moved to act. You see, the third principle for how we can avoid the pitfall of spiritual inaction, number three, is to keep a tender heart. The action of keeping a tender heart. The Bible talks about lots of men, people like Pharaoh, whose hearts were hardened. And the running theme of every person whose heart is hardened is that they do not move. They are not moved to action. They are not moved by conviction. Their hearts have been hardened. But it is because Josiah had a tender heart, a heart that was willing to be malleable and molded by God that caused Josiah, in verse 27, to be humbled, to weep when he heard that he had transgressed against the Word of God. But you see, in our minds today, in our generation, we think that having a tender heart is a bad thing. A tender heart is weak. Pastor's talking about getting, getting connected with our touchy-feely side. It's not strong. In our generation, in our world today, we need to have men and women whose hearts are strong. They will stand firm. They will not be a pushover. 
But that's when you and I have it wrong. If we view that a tender heart is weak. I read this recently, characterizing people with tender hearts. They are hearts that are touched by the aches and sorrows of others. Hearts that share and feel the pain of others and reach out to help. Tender hearts are not just soft. They are strong enough to bear the burdens of others. Tender hearts are not just gentle. They are mighty in handling the tasks before them. Tender hearts are not just caring, but courageous in doing what needs to be done. I want a tender heart, pleasing to God, helpful to men. I like this poem. Look at the words used to describe a tender heart. Not only soft, gentle, and caring, but adjectives that describe a heart that is strong, a heart that is mighty, a heart that is courageous. It is not easy to cultivate a tender heart. In fact, as men and women age, you'll find that their hearts naturally become more set in their ways. In other words, they become harder. And that's why it's often very difficult for older people, generally speaking, to be changed and affected by the Word of God. But if one keeps their heart tender, they will respond to what God says. And you see this principle again in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Remember what Paul writes to the Ephesian church? He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Josiah's tender heart saved the people of his generation. His action of cultivating that tenderness of heart allowed him to change so that the discipline of God would not be poured out on his generation until after he died. A tender heart moves us to spiritual action. The fourth and final action is found in verses 29 to 33. Look with me. Then the king sent and gathered all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the house of the Lord. Then the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which were written in this book. When Josiah heard the prophet has told us message, he gathered all the people and he read to them the word of the book of the covenant which they found in the temple. Josiah then, the Bible tells us, makes a public promise and pledge before all the people that he would keep God's word and he would obey God's word. It was a renewal of the pledge he made when he was only 16. But then we see something interesting in verse 32. And Josiah made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin take a stand. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. 
What Josiah does in verse 32 is that he asks everyone who was present to make a decision. Would they emulate him and do the same and make the same pledge and promise and make a covenant before the Lord to follow him with all of their lives? And the people responded, and they did. What we see here is our fourth action to help us avoid the pitfall of spiritual inaction. Number four, the calling of people to emulate you as you follow God. The action of calling people to emulate you as you follow God. You see, when you ask people to follow you because you follow Christ, then the burden of responsibility and action is on whom? It's on you. If you're going to tell people to follow you because you follow Christ, then you will ensure that you live out a Christ-like life, or at least try with the help of God to live out a Christ-like life if you want someone to follow you. But unfortunately, in our generation, there are so few leaders. There are so few people wanting to take on the mantle of leadership because with it comes the responsibility of living a life worthy for others to follow. Remember, parents, when you ask your children to follow you, you have to live out a life that is worthy of them to follow. It's a great responsibility. Teachers, whether you're in the school or in the church, you are asking your children to emulate and follow you. Do you have actions that are worth following? If you don't live out a life worthy of being followed and you ask people to follow you, it is ridiculous. It is as ridiculous if I asked you, my congregation, this morning to follow me as I eat healthily and exercise every day. You would all laugh because you know I'm not doing it. But if one day in the future, it could happen, if I were to lose 50 or 60 pounds and have a bodybuilder body, and if I ask you to follow me, then actually some of you may be motivated to do so because you see that I have lived the talk. But so few people in the world today are asking others to follow them because they don't want to be the example, and with that the responsibility of a life that is transformed. That's why fathers, many of them, are abdicating their position as spiritual, biblical fathers that the Scriptures talk about, because fathers are to be the spiritual head of the household. Mothers, many mothers are abdicating their position as biblical, spiritual mothers because they don't want the responsibility they would rather let other people lead their children. And yet the Bible tells us that we are called to be examples to others. We are to live our lives so that our actions are worth emulating. Many of us are in the pitfall of spiritual inaction because we do not take on this responsibility. I'm not saying we have to live perfect lives. I'm saying that as we strive to live apart, the very words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ.
Christ. Because some people may think, well, that, that seems a bit egotistical to tell people to follow me. It's fine. The Bible talks about it. But make sure you have a life whose actions are worth emulating. And that should motivate and challenge us to get moving with our spiritual actions. And then there's a summary verse of his kingship in verse 33. The chronicler writes this, Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. While Josiah was ruling and actively involved in the work of the Lord, following the word of the Lord, the Bible tells us his nation did not depart from the Lord God. What a great legacy to live by. Josiah did not fall into the pitfall of spiritual inaction. Likewise, we learn from his life to live a life that seeks the Lord. doesn't matter what age, but we seek the Lord with all of our heart. And that seeking is evidence in our action. Action, number one, that is intolerant when God's specific instructions are in view. Action that is self-reflective and self-examining as it relates to God's will, evidence through His Word. Thirdly, an action that keeps our heart tender to allow God to mold it in how He convicts us through His Word. And finally, the action of calling men and women to follow us, to emulate us as we follow God with our lives. That should challenge us indeed to live a life holy and pleasing so that God will be well pleased with our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that has convicted even my own heart. Too often we just want to sit back and allow our days to go by day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year because we don't want to be motivated to do anything. But I pray to those who are gathered this morning that you would challenge them to seek you with all of their heart. And as they seek you, they will be motivated and challenged to live out a life that is holy and pleasing, a life that moves to the beat of how you want us to live, a life that is challenged to stand up for what is true and what is right, a life to our children and our businesses and our friends that emulates Jesus Christ so we can show them that Christ is indeed worth following. Help us, Lord to avoid the pitfall of spiritual inaction so that we can finish well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.